This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, I know, uh, first, first of all, it's always great, great to be on with you, but I know you had a special shout out that you wanted to give today. So I'm going to let you go ahead and start this off for us. Oh, yes, for sure. And it's always a pleasure to be on with you as well. I got a chance to be at the the Rainbow Push annual conference this year. And I went because this is the the last time that the Reverend Jesse Jackson is going to uh, be at the helm of that organization after 60 plus years professionally, I would say, in this in this struggle. He's stepping us out from leading that organization. And so this is a, a person who I certainly haven't agreed with on, on every point of policy and politics as long as I've been around. But in the city of Chicago, and I think in the United States and maybe around the world, I mean, there were like dignitaries from South Africa who came over to this event. You know, Jesse Jackson is a man who has lived a consequential life and made a lot of good impact for a lot of people, especially black people, like I said, in the United States. And yeah, I, I, I respect him. I honor him and just wanted to shout him out on the Church Politics Podcast and say, thank you, sir, for uh, for your service. Yeah, I mean, certainly someone who has dedicated his life to the people and, and been impactful, even if there are areas where one might have made a different decision, the impact and the fact that he was around the civil rights leaders and earned their respect and things of that nature is something that should not be discounted. So we definitely want to give a shout out. That, that's big news. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, where that organization goes from here and how, it, you know, and, and how they build. But surely that's not easy shoes to fill to be in that position. So we want to give a shout out to the Reverend Jesse Jackson in that regard. Well, folks, you know how we're getting down today, man. We we got a lot of stuff to talk about. But first and foremost, I want to say this over again. And I know I said it before. If you have not watched the How I Got Over docuseries, you need to go to the Ann Campaign's website and check that out. It's about the role that the authority of scripture played in the black church. You don't want to miss it in the music, in the establishment of the black church, in the social action, and so on. You want to check that out. And then we even got an episode about the future of orthodoxy. And I think that will be important. Many of you also know that we have a new whole life project video that came out about maybe a month ago or so. So you can check that out on Instagram or you can go to our YouTube page, which we are trying to build up and check it out there. But as always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also want to give a shout out to all those folks who support us on patreon.com slash church politics. 
We appreciate you, whether you give a lot or whether you give a little, it is much appreciated. Just know that if you do go to Patreon and become a patron, that you will be receive premium episodes. So there's stuff that we don't talk about here that we talk about on the premium episode and most people enjoy it. And if you if you become a patron, you can actually ask us questions and we'll answer some of your questions on that premium episode. Very important stuff. And we need your support. But so much to talk about. It's time to get into it. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Chris, the traditional way of doing things isn't always the best. Just because that's the way we quote unquote have always done it doesn't mean that's the optimal approach. I believe that to be true. And that stands in tension with the fact that the newest or most novel methods aren't necessarily better either. So depending on your ideology, you might fall in one camp or the other. But the truth is, we really can't escape diligently and thoroughly examining different methods, which should be honestly pursued without kind of ideological blinders. And Chris, this is the type of debate that is raging in K through 12 education. Now, I know that you are an education expert. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. California has just approved a new math framework that has been really controversial. It will no longer group children by skill, and it will emphasize self-identity and collaboration. According to Education Week, the thousand-page framework aims to put meaning-making at the center of the math classroom, promoting a focus on problem-solving and applying math knowledge to real-world situations. It also encourages teachers to make math culturally relevant and accessible for all students, especially students of color, who have been traditionally marginalized in that subject. Linda Darling Hammond, who is the president of the California State Board of Education, said this week, or said during a board meeting, I don't think it was this week, maybe last, the United States has not been teaching math effectively or equitably. We are one of the lowest achieving countries in California is below the national average in its achievement in mathematics. This is an area of great need and change is imperative. I think we can all agree on that. The same old, same old will not get us to a new place. The article goes on to say that the framework proposes a fundamental shift to how math content is structured throughout the grades. Instead of organizing curricula and instruction around individual standards, the framework outlines big ideas in mathematics for each grade that are designed to drive instruction. The goal, the framework explains, is to get students engaged in problem solving that feels interesting to give them that feels interesting to them, excuse me, and that demonstrates the real world relevance of math. Okay, I get that. And some teachers who have move to this problem-based method, say that it can make students see why learning math matters in their real lives. Now, there's a big equity and kind of cultural responsiveness question that goes along with this. So the article talks about that too. It says that beyond these debates about teaching strategies, problem-based learning has long-faced political critiques, often from conservatives who oppose the idea that math class could be a venue to discuss social justice themes or solutions to public policy problems. First, the collaborative 
inquiry-based approach is meant to support students from all backgrounds to find a sense of belonging in math classrooms and to engage their participation in meaningful conversations about math. Second, math content itself can help students use math to examine inequities and address important issues in their lives and communities. One of the big questions, Chris, that uh, have come up in kind of the big controversy is when should kids take Algebra 1? The original version of the framework recommended that all students take Algebra 1 in ninth grade, a strategy designed in part to reduce the potentially harmful effects of tracking in which some students were relegated to lower level courses as early as middle school and never caught up. So, Chris, I really want to hear what you think about this. Some of the questions that I have is, what is the path to equity in math? What happens to poor kids who are advanced in math under this framework? Because I I assume that kids that have resources, whether the school is going to teach them algebra one or not, they're going to learn it. So and they're probably going to learn it earlier. What happens to the kids who might not have those resources, but they are advanced? But in general, Chris, what are your thoughts on on this new framework? Yeah, I probably spent a disproportionate amount of my time getting ready for this podcast, looking at, at this thousand-page document that did go through hundreds of revisions. I think, you know, obviously, I didn't get to read the entire thousand-page document. I did look at most of the sections that discuss equity because that seems to be kind of like the, the buzzword that has catapulted this into this kind of like culture war discourse. And I think there are three observations that I come up with. Number one is that the goals to me do seem right. The framework and the guidance that has been put given here is really about making sure that more students have the ability to advance and into rigorous and advanced mathematics the document discusses an idea that, that I know to be true. Uh, I've experienced it myself, and I've heard just so many parents and families talk about this issue over the years, which is the issue of explicit and implicit discussions in classrooms in the early grades about the fact of some people being cut out for mathematics and other people not being cut out for mathematics. And so when that happens, especially when it happens in the early grades, but even when it happens in high school, it can cause people to self-select out of mathematics. Uh, And I know that to be true just from a lot of sort of anecdotal experiences and and hearing a lot of people's stories in in that regard. And so the goal of making sure that more students stay engaged in mathematics so that they can get exposed to to more rigor and more more advanced math, I think that's really great. And I think that the, the, the methodology in general is right this idea of multidimensional math instruction where you're not just depending solely on you know numbers on a page or numbers on a chalkboard, but you're contextualizing math, uh, you're using words, you're using physical models, you're using real world examples to keep people engaged. I'm not a math teacher, but I've been around a lot of sort of like education policy for a significant amount of time. And that seems like a goal that I've heard articulated by math advocates, you know, way before we were in the middle of this big culture war. I, I do think that the the capacity for execution in large unit public school districts is something that I, I think it's it's suspect in, in in my view. I think that this this approach is it, it seems deeply complex. It requires a lot of careful sequencing. 
uh, and when you're dealing with you know large large numbers of students that gets and clarify for me this because i'm not going to stop you too mm -hmm. long it's optional so if you if you have one teacher a few teachers that are using this option and then you go to one who isn't it just seems like it it, 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 it just doesn't seem like it worked am i wrong about that no and i, I think that's one thing in the messaging around this that, that that i am reading from the school board that i think is is less than ideal you know i you know i, I kind of wish that citizen consulting group was brought in to like talk with them about how they talk about this because when you go out and you say that you know hey you know this is just guidance it's just framework all teachers don't have to do it i think you actually heighten the level of anxiety for a lot of families because you don't want to have a situation where i go from one school to another school and it's completely different or I go from one teacher to another teacher that's completely different and most people who are involved in education policy in you know a in an honest conversation would would tell you that guidance and frameworks do begin to dictate what professional development looks like, dictate what is happening in terms of sourcing curriculum and material. And so it will impact. And when they make policy change in Californian education, it will impact what happens all over the country because there's such a large state, a lot of curriculum makers are going to adjust what they're creating to California just because California is going to buy disproportionately more of their product. Uh, and so I think it would, it would have been better to be upfront and honest about the fact that this is hugely consequential and, and, and just try to message it and talk about it in a way, uh, if you believe in it, which, I mean, I, I suppose they do, they passed it. So I, I, th I do think if you believe in it, get out there and fight for it. Uh, and part of the thing that makes it difficult, is, and this is my third observation, is that it seems like there's this incorporation of culture war language unnecessarily, right? And I, I don't know whose idea this is or whose goal is being reached by including this kind of language because there are all types of ways to talk about what California is proposing to do in math that still would have caused some controversy between conservative math world, but that's not a politically conservative world necessarily. That's just like people who like are much more, you know, hardcore believers and straight up at the chalkboard, you know, learning the formulas, that type of thing. And they still would have had some, some complaints about this, but it wouldn't have been so culturally charged. Because when I'm reading the document and, and you see language in there about self-identity, now that feels really culture war charged. Uh, I think that really what the, the sort of like math teachers who are involved in this are really just getting at this idea of finding a way for students to recognize their own mathematical strengths, right? Because numerical reasoning, it can express itself in a lot of ways. And so there, there are some things in there where you think about like, you know, maybe I'm very persevering in math, right? Like I, I'm just going to work at it until I get there. I'm not super crazy great at mental math, but if I stick to it and I do my notes and I go over it, uh, I can get to it. And that might be a strength. Maybe, maybe I am great in mental math. And so, but, but this idea is really just getting a student to identify some strength where they are saying to themselves, I'm good at something when it comes to mathematics and sort of numerical reasoning. And so I think that's a good thing because one of the goals here is to, is to have it where students don't opt out of math too early and, and self-select out. Same thing with, with like social justice, like using social justice. You could have just said community issues or 
you know, policy problems. I think well, maybe you're being too kind. Maybe that's not what they meant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that. I think that somebody definitely, because when you read through the document, it's so charged with these culture war terms. Somewhere in there, I have to believe that somebody did that intentionally. But I think that it's unfortunate because I think that a lot of what is in the document is actually trying to achieve some things that people have been fighting for for decades when it comes to math instruction. And it just clouds the issue to have all this culture war. No, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. In the document. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's out to do some, some positive things. My, my big difficulty with it is that the, the document nor from the doc, the, the documents I've been able to read, the news that I've been able to consume, you have a document and a group of people who are not great at communicating what is happening here. I think it's going to raise the anxiety level for a lot of educators and a lot of families. So let me press you on two things. How are you feeling specifically about keeping everybody at the same level for a certain amount of time? So again, I didn't get to read the entire document and I did consume a lot of news. And I will also caveat that I do not think that the folks who are talking on behalf of this change are the best messengers for it. But what what I'm seeing in, in my reading of the document is a little bit less keeping everybody at the same level and a little bit more flexible grouping. So it's not it's not non-grouping, it's flexible grouping. Uh, and actually provide an example in the document of one school that actually set up a you know, these kind of like math communities or whatever. But you know, they take the four years of math algebra, geometry, algebra two, and trigonometry. Like it, basic, you know, this is not super advanced, just basic mathematics, but everybody still would come in technically at algebra one. But the way this school did it is that there's a an assessment that students take, and then they are assigned, they're grouped and assigned based on that assessment to a lead teacher. And that lead teacher has that that group, they spend time with their lead teacher during the same math period. They spend part of the period, the early part of the period with their lead teacher. Uh, and then they go into a, a course, you know, algebra one, geometry, algebra two, or trig. And basically what they do is that you get four years to learn all this math, but you can actually move at different times. So you can stay in algebra one for two years, geometry for half a year, go to algebra two for a year. So you're moving around inside this community. And then if you finish all that content, my assumption, I didn't get to this part of the document, but my assumption is if you finish all of that content in three years, then you can go, you know, pre-calculus or something like that. So basically my reading of the document, and I, I want to finish reading the document before I like sign my signature on this, but is that you're talking about flexible grouping, not non-grouping. You're not talking about holding people back from advanced mathematics. Uh, if that is the case, if the ultimate impact of this, which I could totally see, right? And I think this is what people are arguing, is not that the document says keep everybody at the same level, is that when you take something this complex uh, that requires this type of sequencing, because even what I just described, like it sounds awesome, but somebody who's been around a lot of public schools, and this is no shade on public school teachers or public school administrators, because I really think those are some of the heroes of our society. It's just that the issues that they have to deal with, if I'm a teacher and I got 30, 35 kids, implementing something this complex is 
is going to be a challenge. And so it may be that the impact is people just sort of go to the lowest common denominator, which is we're just going to keep everybody at the same level. That way nobody can say that there's not equity here and just go that way. I think, yeah, I think part of my issue is we should, I don't want to say we all want equity because some people probably don't care. Equity matters. It has to matter. I think you make a great point. We don't want people, we don't want kids giving up on math too early. And if at too early of a stage, you're separating into the fact where they just like, I can't do it. I'm not good at this. And they, they quit early. That's a, that's a problem. I also don't, you know, I also appreciate application of real world problems to say, okay, why am I doing this? And the focus on problem solving. I'm not sure I get, I mean, I guess you could have a couple problems that involve social justice. I don't know why that's at the center of that. And I may disagree with you on the idea that that's just an accidental thing, right? I I don't know that the self-identity and the social justice as I would be interested to see how you implement that outside of just putting it in a word problem or something like that. How does that, you know, how does that work? And I don't know that I have the trust. Yeah. I, and I, I, I think that the wording is, is not an accident, just to, to be clear. I'm not saying that, the, that inserting those words was accidental. I'm saying it was a mistake. Yeah. Right, right. You, you didn't say accident. You said it was a mistake. But I would say that I don't even know what's a, if it's a mistake and it, it just wasn't wise or there is some intention behind it, right? Like there's something you know, some, some level of intention behind that. So I don't, I don't know. It's hard to say, but even with all that, so so I love making it so kids understand. So they apply it at the same time. I I don't hope we don't think we can take the eliminate struggle out of this sub out of any subject and really mastering it. Right. Learning sometimes a lot of times, especially when it comes to math is going to take endurance, perseverance. You can't really eliminate that. And then the other thing is, it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes. So how far do we go to make it more comfortable or to conform to certain cultures or certain preferences? Now, in as much as it does conform to certain cultures and not others, cool. You know, let, let's correct that. And we know we've seen that in, in a lot of our education. But the question is, is how far do we go with that? And how much of math is always going to come down to how much time you are spending on math? even outside of the classroom. And if we're going to discount that, because I think in a lot of ways, we're trying to run so far away from this idea of achievement gap and all that stuff that we just want to act like it doesn't exist. And we want to act like we can make everything even, even if there are things that are making it hard for, for kids to learn. So, yeah, I, I think I basically agree with all of what you just said. I mean, I think that the my point on insertion, inserting the culture war language is that people have been fighting this particular fight around how diverse students access math education and math learning for a long time before culture war was a thing. And the fact that this particular issue has been taken into this kind of culture war context, I'm not saying it was done without intention. I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. And for those who, who are fighting the fight for for this kind of like change in, in math instruction, it sucks because this is this is not at all what the fight has been about. And then the, I think the the upshot, at least for the people who I know have been on the, this for a long time, the upshot is to actually communicate all of what you just said to students earlier in their math career, so that they don't self select out and give up, right? But they continue to struggle, that they continue to remain engaged with math, the thought being that if more students remain meaningfully engaged 
then they will, you know, you'll see better outcomes. I think that the application of this, at most math teachers would probably agree that the application of using mathematics toward real-world problems pretty much is contextualizing it in, in word problems and still getting after the, the math, which is why it doesn't need to be such a feature of the document because it's, it's not the, the feature of the, the long-term fight. I don't know about these particular people in this particular moment who wrote this particular document, but the, the, the idea that all students deserve powerful, rigorous math education, that all students can access that, that all students can engage with it and achieve high outcomes in math is something that I do think has not been a shared and consistently communicated set of values in math. I heard it myself personally. I, I don't think I gave up on math, but I heard it myself. And I've heard it in a lot of parent stories where implicit and explicit conversations suggest to kids that if you're not a certain type of kid, you're not able to do math. And and some, sometimes, a lot of times, that is interpreted in a cultural way, right? You can me. Sure, sure. And I think here's the, here's the question, too, though. How much can contextualizing do? And if it needs, I mean, if it's all always contextualized for white people, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. If it's all always contextualized for somebody, that's a problem. So if we can mix that up, I think that can be good. But how quickly do we get to diminishing returns? Because at the basis of this, is when it comes to math, you got to spend time with it and you got to study it. Yeah. And let's be honest, in certain communities, there are reasons why there's more distractions that take away from the time that you're able to study. But we can't take that that truth out of it. You got to spend time with it in order to get it right. Mm -hmm. And how much does contextualization change that? But I'm with you as far as we us not wanting kids quitting. I'm all the way with that. I just hope when when in the conversation about equity, that we don't lose some of the foundational problems that we're running. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think even the use of the word equity in the document, honestly, it's doing a lot probably, of work, it's probably it's not necessary to use, you know, that word in this particular moment, which is why, again, like I could probably read the document and affirm a lot of what is in the document, but as for me, it comes back to this central question, and it comes back to this on a lot of issues of public education policy, is that the goal sounds right. But when you think about trying to implement something this complex across large unit school districts, across large states like California and overcrowded, under-resourced schools that are teaching children who are coming from very difficult circumstances, the implementation is always the part that and that's what worries me. The implement it's, it's, it seems fairly complicated, and based on the change you made, I think you do run the risk of holding some students back if the way that you vary it or if the way that you you move folks forward isn't clear. Then you end up just keeping them in the same space, yeah, because nobody can accuse you of messing the equity up, right? So I don't know, man. So let me ask you this: If somebody came to you and they made you the education czar of Illinois? And they said, we want to implement this policy. Would you Would you say, go ahead and do it? I mean, I would probably, I would say that it would need modifications. One of the first modifications, though, that I would make is in, you know, in terms of assessment, like we still need to be assessing hard math skills, right? So it's like if, the, if, you, if you're changing the assessment too much, then you're not just t- changing how you're teaching, you're changing what you're measuring. 
And, and that's a huge change. I mean, it kind of changes the basis of what we're doing to some. So. Yeah. So if I, I would say, you know, in, in general, if you feel like the assessment is wrong, let's fix the assessment and don't because it, it's like any kind of experiment. Right? You got to control one side of the equation. You know, so if it's assessment that we're fixing, let's work on the assessment leave the instruction alone. If it's instruction that we work, want to work on, let's work on the instruction, leave the assessment in place. Because if the instruction is the problem, then the changes that we make in instruction should manifest in the assessment, right? Um, and so I think that would be one of the big things for me is let's let's not change instruction and, assess, and assessment at the same time, because then you don't have any control to really measure. You lose your frame of reference. What, yeah, what your changes are, what, what changes you're making, because you don't have that frame of reference. So I, I would love to see a lot of school districts pursue in general this idea of making math more accessible to more students. And I, I don't think that it will only impact students of color. I think there are lots of students who sort of self-select out of math. And the, the, the goal of getting people more involved in, in, in mathematics is is laudable. But we would change it if we were doing it in Illinois, if I were in charge. I'll, I'll kind of end on this. We can't be overly concerned about optics, maintain certain narratives, and we can't be overly concerned about ideological conclusions. And based on the language in this, I think that may be the case in, in, in here. And that and that's one of the things that worries me. And that's why I think some kids who are high achieving may be held back. And I don't know that we're helping. I think you come in very quickly diminishing returns, even for those who are struggling, if we're if we're losing some of that, those basic math skills. But we'll see one way or another. We're going to see how it goes. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Y'all may remember that in February of this year, a Norfolk Southern freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. We talked about it on this here podcast. About half of East Palestine's nearly 5,000 residents evacuated when days after the February 3rd derailment, officials decided to burn toxic vinyl chloride from five tanker cars to prevent a catastrophic explosion. 
Now, most have returned, though many complain about illnesses and worry about soil, water, and air that may be contaminated. We still don't know, you know, what the consequences of this spill will, will be years down the, you know, years down the road. So you have it still maybe possibly in the water, in the air, in the soil. We don't know what was going on, you know, with the, the smoke people were taking in. We don't know exactly what's happening. Now, at very least, I would say, and maybe Chris disagrees with me here, I doubt it, that we should be doing what's necessary to, when it comes to regulations at least, to make sure that this doesn't happen again, right? I mean, that's that's not much to ask. Well, Senator J.D. Vance, a Republican from Ohio, proposed, along with proposed the Railway Safety Act with Senator Sherrod Brown, who is a Democrat, also from Ohio, to prevent other toxic train derailment disasters. But according to National Review, the rail regulation bill championed by a handful of Republican senators and the entire Democratic caucus is currently stuck at 58 votes, which, you know, could not get past the filibuster. It's too short of being clear of that of Senate's a filibuster rule. Now, Republican Senate leadership is largely opposed to it, with Minority Whip John Thune and Commerce Committee ranking member Ted Cruz being vocal about their opposition. The railroad lobby, if you didn't know, as my dad would say, has long money, and that may be part of it. You can go ask maybe Ted Cruz, who is, again, a ranking member of the Commerce Committee, who is carrying their water and shucking and jiving through the Senate on their behalf. Now, I was going to say more about Ted Cruz, but I'm going to be I'm going to pull back, Chris. I had more that I was going to say about him in this regard. I'm not going to say it. Many people know Ted Cruz is not my favorite politician. And this is, you know, this kind of stuff is another re reason why. In a political article, it said that the rail safety divide within the Republican Party is a microcosm of its realignment over the past few years. Former President Donald Trump supports this measure. But other than Senator uh, Mitt Romney, shout out to Mitt Romney, the effort gets almost all its GOP support from the party's small yet growing populist wing. And unless the party's establishment gets more fully on board, the safety plan, Vance uh, shaped with Senator uh, Sherrod Brown again, may stall out. Chris, I'm going to be straight up. This instance, we're going to shout him out to the entire Democratic caucus. This reminds me of how bad the Republican establishment was even before Trump. And with the advent of Trump, you can almost forget about that. But. McConnell and folks like Senator Lindsey Graham have been pulling in indefensible stunts like this for the longest. Again, and here, here's what Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz had to say about it, and I'll paraphrase. He says, all of us were moved by the testimony of the East Palestine residents, but I remain concerned that this bill is overly and needlessly prescriptive in certain places. In particular, I worry that these numerous new rulemakings and authorities and power secretary Buttigieg. So he's bringing in the names of people rather than just they will empower secretary Buttigieg and the Biden administration to further and aggressively restrict the movement of American energy products. What I need you to do, Senator Cruz, is make some amendments that cure some of this so we can move forward with the stuff that's really needed. Otherwise, I'm going to assume you and the rest of the Republican establishment, which you claim you're not a part of, but I can't tell in many instances. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that y'all just want to stall this out until people forget about it. And it's not a big deal anymore. 
and you can look at your you give your your railroad buddies a wink and a nod and say, I got you through this this one. You owe me one. So if, if there's no serious legislation or serious amendments that are added to this to fix the problem, because I think many of the issues that you're naming, I would imagine that Senator J.D. Vance would have similar concerns. I'm sure he does not want to hand over everything to Secretary Buttigieg. But I think you throw those names out there to give yourself enough space to do nothing. That's my guess, Chris. I could be wrong. Go ahead. Tell me what you think. Yeah, maybe I should also hold back since you held back. Now, don't let me hold you back. I was going, I was going too far. So I said, you know what, Justin? Be a little more wise and, and chill out. I'll say this, and 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 I I'll, I I don't even I won't even talk about elected officials right now. I'll address my commentary to to the church because this is the church politics podcast. And I think the church listens here. And what I would say to the church is that the politics of aggressive compassion at some point has to manifest in our modern politics. And in my mind, what I mean by the politics of aggressive compassion is at some point we have to be unwilling to sit by and and watch people suffer because of bad politics and bad policy making. In my view, this Railroad Safety Act is pro-life legislation. This is pro-life politics. If anybody ever wants to know what I mean, I I won't even try to speak for the entire end campaign, but if you ever want to know what I mean, when I talk about being whole life, what I mean when I talk about being pro-life from the the moment of conception to the point of natural death this is what i mean i mean that you uh that that children in the womb should have a, a a right to be born into the world and when they are born in the world they should have a right to be able to live in a community and not have to worry about a corporation spilling toxic waste into their water and into their their ground i mean that you should be able to drive over your roads and not have to worry about losing your life or your livelihood because of you know these massively increased numbers of train derailments that are happening uh, all over our country. The you know think about how many pregnant mothers are in East Palestine right now, and so for politicians to espouse that they are pro-life, that they are Christian conservatives, that they espouse this kind of biblical worldview and then sit there and say that they won't do anything about this very obvious problem in our country. It is hypocrisy and the politics of aggressive compassion would not let that go. You know, the arguments against this bill that that it places too many restrictions or empowers, you know, the administration. Number one, members of Congress have to re- recognize that legislation is not designed to empower one particular administration. That is why in our form of democracy, we have elections every four years to elect a chief executive because these laws are not designed to empower Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. They are designed to protect citizens under any administration. And if you go read this legislation, I encourage people to go and read it. This is actually very light touch, in my opinion. You're basically... It may not be enough, right? I mean, it was, in, in my view, it certainly would not be enough. It's very light touch. You're talking about putting kind of like defect detection technology on trains. And you're talking about an industry here that's uh, making billions of dollars every year in profit. And this legislation is saying, basically, we're going to require 
you to put some kind of devices on your trains that will tell you if the thing is getting ready to break down and go off the tracks. And then we're going to expand the number of of materials that are considered, you know, hazardous and need to be transported on this particular type of train with this particular type of technology. That's basically what this bill is doing. And if Senator Cruz or anybody else has an issue with any material on that list of materials that's been added to the list, I've been around legislation making, as have you, Justin, go through the list, say which ones you think don't need to be on there so that we can have the conversation make some compromise, get those things off the list and, and move forward with the, with the policy. But to make these type of broad statements about government regulation, bring up the name of Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, really seems to me like more like political grandstanding than honest efforts toward policymaking. And, and it's, I said I wasn't going to talk about politicians, but it does, it smacks of cowardice in my view. I would say, though, to the church that there really is a moment where the politics of aggressive compassion could actually move this, because I do think with former President Donald Trump supporting this piece of legislation, if a groundswell of traditionally Republican voters actually did raise their voices about this in some uh, coordinated fashion in some key states, I think you could move some senators. And Justin, I I hope that you will affirm this too to our listeners. We've actually seen in our own advocacy uh, inside of the AIM campaign that strategic voice raising at strategic moments on strategic issues can move the way senators are thinking about their votes in the Senate. So don't think yourself powerless. And just imagine for a second, I would ask our listeners, what might happen if the church, if the pro-life movement came in and saved this particular piece of legislation. I think it could have real impact and be a step in the right direction for our politics. Chris says that it's cowardice. I would say it's just corruption. I think this is corrupt. I think there are certain industries in America that get to do whatever they want to do. And if they carelessly spill chemicals all over somebody's city and risk the lives of unborn children, of people who are alive, then they get to burn it up, research it. Go listen to the, we can't go over everything we talked about the first time we talked about this. Go look at who did the evaluations of what this was going to do to people. They let the companies do it. They let the railroads and people associated with them evaluate the spill and what the consequences might be. The railroads, and I'm not against everybody that works for them, but in general, they get to do what they want to do. And if they take a loss, they don't take a loss because we just take the loss. The taxpayers take the loss. And so what Ted Cruz is doing right now is corruption, in my opinion, because to your point, Chris, if you really were that serious and you felt so bad about these testimonies that you heard, then you get something substantive done. You don't just say no, Buttigieg might be empowered and you use those names and you throw out that empowerment, you throw out all this green stuff and all that because you know that it'll give you the space to do nothing. It'll raise enough question or enough suspicion or enough fear that you might be handing power over to the progressives so you don't have to do anything. And I just think I think it's plainly corrupt. Shout out to Mitt Romney. But the rest of the establishment on on the right need to be ashamed of themselves. We don't even know what the consequence of 10 years down the road. Half the half the town could have cancer. You don't know. You burned it up, didn't clean it up the right way because you just wanted to get it out the way and keep moving. 
That's ridiculous, man. I'll let you take us out, though, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I will just one say amen you know, because Justin is preaching. And really, just again, I just want to urge the listener, take it from somebody who's been around policymaking. It does not go unnoticed when private citizens pick up their phones, pick up their pens, make phone calls, write letters, visit Senate offices. Those things have outsized impact. And I think that this is a moment where the politics of aggressive compassion could move some Republican senators and get them on this legislation. And this legislation is literally, from a compassion viewpoint, the least we can do. And if regulation is the worst thing that you think can happen in this republic, I I got some news for you. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast, and I think talking about corruption leads us into this next is a good segue i should say into this uh next conversation into this this next portion of of the podcast and this comes from the washington post i'm gonna let you y'all y'all hear this out a mega drought has seared arizona stressing its rivers and reservoirs and reducing water to a trickle in the homes of farm workers near the desert valley for nearly a decade the state of arizona has leased this rural terrain west of Phoenix, to a Saudi-owned company, allowing it to pump all the water it needs. So you have this huge drought, but then you have a Saudi company in Arizona who's been able to pump as much water as they need. But hear this. And for years, the state did not know how much water the company was consuming. The lack of information was a choice. This is what the article said. Certain politicians apparently blocked the push to make the company have water meters. These meters would tell us exactly how much water they were consuming, but instead they decided to turn a blind eye and not have any meters. Now, maybe you guys can justify not having these water meters in a state that's in a desert. So there's no, there's no, you know, having a drought in a desert shouldn't be a huge surprise to you. And you should probably keep some tabs on how much water a foreign company is pumping, right? Arizona's lax regulatory environment and sophisticated lobbying by the Saudi-owned company allowed a scarce American resource to flow unchecked to a foreign corporation. This is the article again. To advance its interests before the state, the, this company hired an influential Republican lawyer as well as a former member of Congress, and it sought to win over its rural neighbors, providing a high school with donations that included sponsored sports bags what they were doing here is they were using all this water to water things that they couldn't water in the same way in saudi arabia because saudi arabia is trying to keep their resources and they know that there's a drought they have also have droughts on water and so they say that you can't water things in the same way that they're using this water uh, for in arizona but because they got the right lobbyists and because they donated a little bit here and there to a high school, they were able to use as much water as they wanted to give resources and put all that stuff back in Saudi Arabia. And nobody knows exactly how much was used. Again, this is a corruption. This is people in high places putting their pockets 
above the people. But I'll let Chris weigh into that. So I don't get shocked by a lot, but this kind of took me took me aback. I think a, a, a basic rule that they recognize in Saudi Arabia is don't grow alfalfa in the desert if you don't if you have water shortage because alfalfa takes a lot of water. It takes a lot of sun, which there's plenty of that in the desert, but it takes a ton of water. And so you probably should figure out another thing. But I guess, and I haven't been able to research this, Justin, I guess alfalfa is, is kind of like the best thing for, uh, for dairy cows to eat. And the Saudis want their dairy cows eating alfalfa. And so they decided to grow alfalfa in Arizona. Alfalfa is grown here. And then sent over to Saudi Arabia where you can't grow the alfalfa because they're actually water, watching their water and probably wouldn't let them get away with it. <laughs> I mean, and this I was trying to I, I, I put it down somewhere and I, I don't know where I wrote it down. But they, I mean, they, they, there's a, a massive amount of water. Like you, you should know that this is not a little bit of water. I think it was something like enough water for like 50,000 households for a year. Just a ton of water going to feed cows. In Saudi Arabia, while United States citizens are having to ration their water, you know, pay exorbitant prices for uh, water delivery, and just live under this constant stress of, are we going to run out of water? And then it says the former governor didn't really want to take on it. You know, it was too much to take on this corporation and, and really make sure that they had these meetings. Are you serious? What are you there for? It's too much to take them on because they had some high-powered lobbyists. Something's wrong with our system, Chris. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, it, I, it, it is. There's not much to say. I mean, if if you can't interpret the problem of putting Saudi Arabian cows over United States citizens. I mean, there's there's a lot of remediation that we have to do. And- but this is this has been the problem with us before. We're about a quick buck. Yeah. And the people, working class people and others are suffering right now because we gave away all our manufacturing. We gave all that stuff because we're about a quick buck. We're about getting that quick buck. And then, OK, let me give my two percent to charity. Yeah. After I just gutted the United States for decades. We're about a quick buck, man. Yeah. And if that quick bug has to, has to come at corruption, if it has to come on the backs of working class people, hey, we got our quick buck. Now we got to figure out how to get, you know, how to try to get some manufacturing and stuff like that back over here because we done gave away stuff that now we really need. And now it's in China's hands. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole different conversation. As you can see, this episode has me a little frustrated. <laughs> there we are. To Chris's point, though, all is not lost. You have an opportunity, as always to speak up on this stuff and to hold people accountable. And some of that stuff is what we're trying to do, at least help people do in different local spaces through the and campaigns chapters. So if you have a chapter in your area, you can go to the website and see this is some of the stuff that we can speak into or at least make people aware of in our areas so that they can say, hold up, you're not you're the governor and you gave this nice, cute speech and all that stuff. You're not stopping these folks. Somebody should say something about that a long time ago. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to help do. But we need your support to get people into a space and to get organized to do some of these things. Go ahead. Chris. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to spend my last little bit 
stressing that same thing. If if you just don't underestimate your ability, right? If, if 25 pastors, you happen to live in maybe the state of Arizona or any state where there's a Republican center, senator, 25 pastors get together, write a letter to a senator and say, listen, we and our congregations are taking this issue extremely seriously. We're watching how you're going to vote. We think you need to vote on the side of compassion, make sure that we take care of Americans, whether it be railroad regulation, whether it be preserving water for Americans. We take this seriously. 25 pastors to a United States senator who actually don't just put something on Facebook or you know tweet about it, but actually write a letter to a senator. You can actually change and impact at least how these folks are dealing with this policy. And I'm not just telling you things, what I think, I'm telling you what I know, uh, what I've done and experienced. So please go from this podcast and get some friends, get your pastors. If you are a pastor, get some of your pastor friends and take action on some of these things. I think that, that they are, that things are teed up where some change can happen if some people get involved. Yeah, and this is an establishment problem. So it may be a railroad issue on the right. It may be, you know, when it comes to this, have been the Republicans that push it through. But I think in general, this is an establishment problem. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that, to some extent, people voted for Trump because they see people c- continually get away with this. Corporations and industries continue to get away with this. Now, in my opinion, Trump didn't do, <laughs> t- didn't really do, but he's saying he's supporting the railroad stuff now. But when he had the chance to really do something about this, I don't think he did anything about that. But don't discount that the people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump really were just sick of this crap. They were sick of seeing this happen over and over again and bringing somebody else in with with a smile who was just going to do whatever the establishment and the corporations who support the establishment told them to do, which has placed our economy and our people in terrible situations, whether we're talking about healthcare, whether we can go from industry to industry to see how this has really hurt us. And something has to change. Now, is populism within itself the answer? I think I think in many ways it's just reactive, that it's just about grievance. But I see why people lean into that sometimes when the establishment is acting the way they're acting and they're not going to change unless they're held accountable. Let me say that straight up. It's not going to change unless they're held accountable. And what Chris is pushing you towards, what I'm pushing you towards is greater accountability for those folks who will just keep eating at the trough until something changes. Yeah. All right. Well, that's this episode. Was a, a frustrating one for me, Chris. So I, I'll apologize. Well, not on apologize for it, but <laughs> I'm sorry that you had to, had to be a part of, of of that. Thank you all for joining. I hope y'all got something out of this. You know, we we are passionate about these issues, and when we see wrongdoing, it's not something that we're going to take kindly. As always, in camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp.
This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.